0: Hello and welcome to a lecture for the 16th annual Kosciuszko Chair Conference and the 4th Oscar Hiletsky Symposium. This year's virtual conference and speakers will focus on the topic of the Intermarium and Trimarium, Concepts and New Realities. Today's joint virtual symposium is organized by the Institute of Oral Politics and the Oscar Hiletsky Institute in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the passing away of Professor Oscar Hiletsky. For those who are new, IWP is a graduate school of National Security, Intelligence, and International Affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to visit us at iwp.edu. On behalf of IWP, I'd like to thank all of our supporters who make IWP events possible. Today, we will be hearing from IWP's founder, President Emeritus and Chancellor, Dr. John Lynchowski, who will discuss the implications of US policy for Russia's strategic decision-making on Ukraine. From 1981 to 1983, Dr. Lynchowski served at the State Department at the Bureau of European Affairs as a special advisor to Undersecretary of Political Affairs, Lawrence Eagleberg. From 1983 to 1987, He was the Director of European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. In that capacity, he was the Principal Soviet Advisor to President Reagan. He has been associated with several academic and research institutions in Washington DC area, including Georgetown University, the University of Maryland, the American Enterprise Institute, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the Council for Inter-American Security, and the International Freedom Foundation. He has also served on the staff of Congressman James Quarter. Dr. Lynchowski attended the Thatcher School, earning his BA at the University of California, Berkeley, and received his MA and PhD from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He founded the Institute of World Politics in 1990 and served as the president until 2021. He now serves as the president emeritus and the chancellor at the institute. Welcome, Dr. John Lynchowski.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm delighted to give a presentation to you today about uh, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine and its implicate and the implications for U.S. policy. And uh, so, I'd just like to begin by noting that. This is the biggest war in Europe since World War II. It has already cost tens of thousands of casualties and the destruction of billions of dollars of property. The Russian invasion itself can properly be considered a war crime under international law. And the direct attacks on civilians, on people, residences, and economic uh, infrastructure constitute a massive collection of war crimes. From what is reported about the treatment of prisoners taken by Russia, there may be even more crimes of a different order, and that doesn't even count the kidnapping of thousands of Ukrainian children. So several major questions arise here. How could this have come about? What could have been done to prevent it? And what has to be done under the circumstances? <clears throat> it's useful to begin by observing that a couple of important uh, observing a couple of important maxims in foreign policy, maxims for the achievement and maintenance of peace and security uh, we teach these at IWP. The first of these is the necessity of seeing the world realistically. This would seem to be an obvious principle, but the record of the conduct of US foreign policy and the views of several prominent schools of foreign policy thought reveal that this principle is not so obvious. There are many impediments to seeing foreign realities correctly. There's mirror imaging, where we assume others are just like us, there's foreign propaganda and deception. And a part of this, is historical revisionism, which we are seeing in full bloom today, and this of course is aggravated by widespread ignorance of history, even amongst foreign policy experts. There are other impediments to seeing reality correctly there's ideological bias and utopianism there's corruption where uh, particularly corruption by foreign influence operations there's group think and the conventional wisdom that often dominates in different uh, uh, government agencies. And perhaps the worst impediment of all is the moral failure, which, which we at IWP identify as wishful thinking and willful blindness. And so a key element in several of these impediments is the failure to recognize the existence of evil and a concomitant failure to understand the strategic intentions of many of the world's bad actors. So plagued by by these conceptual, and perhaps we can even call them moral hindrances, our foreign policy leaders often tend to suffer from illusions about the possibilities of conflict resolution. So the larger issue here involves a derivative principle of foreign policy, the need for moral strategic clarity. You cannot prevent war or achieve peace if you're confused about the tyrannical aggressors of this world or about the worthiness of our own country. And what we've seen in recent years is acute moral strategic confusion in both categories. There's the systematic denigration of America, which is a phenomenon generated by domestic opponents of our constitutional order and stimulated uh, in our social media and elsewhere by our adversaries, such as Russia and communist China. And then there are the false impressions of our adversaries. In the case at hand here of this Ukraine war, As Volodymyr Zelensky recently explained not long ago, um, Russia's policy toward Ukraine goes back decades and even centuries. It's a policy that denies Ukraine's existence as a separate nation with a distinct identity and culture. Mm -hmm. Putin has promoted the continuation of this policy through his own historical revisionism. In his famous essay in 2021, uh, Putin voiced his conviction that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. He stressed that tensions between the two were due entirely to anti-Russian conspiracies perpetrated by foreigners. He argued that Ukraine occupies historic Russian lands and that its current borders are illegitimate. He even went so far as to say that Ukraine's very existence as an independent state depends on Russia's consent. As he put it, quote, I'm confident that the true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia, unquote. He totally ignores the fact that Ukraine has an authentic uh, history growing out of Kiev and Rus. And that Russia was much more an outgrowth of Muscovy, not Kievan Rus'. And it, it drew, Muscovy drew its power from serving as the agents of the Mongol Khan in this part of the world. And it was from, from that experience that the Muscovite princes learned the lessons of Oriental despotism. <laughs> Putin also ignored the fact that large parts of ukraine were long part of the grand duchy of lithuania and the polish lithuanian commonwealth this was for several hundred years and that this history gave ukraine long standing cultural ties to europe that were not shared by russia so in 2008 in bucharest putin told president george w bush that ukraine was not a real country. By the way, he said the same thing about about Kazakhstan. And in a speech uh, in, in early 2022, Putin reiterated that Ukraine had never really had real statehood, and that it was an integral part of Russia's own history, culture, and spiritual space. Now, the last of these dimensions is particularly interesting, given the voluntary separation of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from the Patriarchate of Moscow, something that the latter's patriarch has vehemently opposed. He's been all the more exercised about this split, given the assent to it by the ecumenical Orthodox Patriarch of of Constantinople. So now, not only is Putin making such declarations, but Russian occupation authorities in Ukraine have introduced a curriculum in the schools that asserts that Ukraine is part of Russia and that Ukrainian national identity was an invention of the Soviet period. All of Putin's false history has a purpose. To justify his imperialist ambitions, Putin has been motivated from the beginning, uh, the beginning of his rule, by a seething resentment over loss of superpower status due to the defeat of Soviet communism in the Cold War. Indeed, he called the collapse of the USSR the greatest political calamity of the 20th century. Restoring the former Soviet political space is his ambition. It is an imperialist policy, and it explains Moscow's interference in the internal affairs of all the former Union republics of the old USSR. Of all those republics, Ukraine is the most important to the imperial agenda. Recovering it to Russian rule is essential. To the dream of restoring Russia's great power status. Under the circumstances, the idea of an independent Ukraine is a mortal threat to Russian imperialism. Because that imperialism constitutes such a decisive element of Russia's very national identity, the threat of Ukrainian independence is seen as an almost existential threat to Russia itself. So, as one analyst put it, Putin wants to have the last word in determining Ukraine's history, culture, language, and identity. Along with the new fronts in armed conflict, these are the decisive fronts in Russia's war against Ukraine. As Putin's article in 2021 made clear at the time, the ongoing frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine and even control over Crimea were not the real issue. The real war is over the entirety of Ukraine, which Putin insists must stay in Moscow's sphere of influence. So we have a conflict that has existential implications for both parties. This means that Putin is determined to persist in his aggression, even if he is temporarily stopped, or even if he, if the Ukrainian armed forces are able to push him back uh, and, 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 and cause uh, a longer hiatus in, in his aggression. As Zelensky has pointed out, Russia has been encroaching on Ukraine since the collapse of the USSR. And their methods have included, first, supplying Russian passports to Ukrainians, buying up Ukrainian industries, bribing members of the Ukrainian parliament, and financing political parties in Ukraine to such an extent that a pro-Russian party became one of the largest parties in the country. Zelensky especially focused on media influence, especially the influence of Russian television. Washington's attention to all this has been sporadic and characterized by wishful thinking and sending signals of weakness to all concerned. Successive administrations ignored key indicators of Moscow's intentions for decades. Russia indicated its intentions for reconstituting the former Soviet political space already in 1992, with the promulgation of the first draft of, of its national security doctrine, to, namely, which, which included a pre- provision to protect Russian-speaking peoples being denied their human rights in neighboring countries. Nobody paid attention to this. Then we encouraged the nuclear disarmament of Ukraine in the Budapest Memorandum of of 1994, where uh, vague guarantees were given to Ukraine about maintaining its sovereignty Uh, by the signatory countries, which, of course, were not honored by anybody. The same year, Ukraine, and this is in 1994, uh, Ukraine started publicly complaining about Russian active measures targeted toward it. Active measures, what's that? It's a KGB term of art referring to uh, disinformation, forgeries, provocations. And covert political influence operations they constitute uh subversion and the and the attempt to soften up uh, Ukraine uh, preferably without war uh to prepare perhaps the you know the battlefield for war. <clears throat> Nobody in our government back then paid attention to all of this, but we, uh, you know, we at IWP did uh, and, and addressing active measures, these various forms of non-military aggression uh, has been one of those, you know, this has been one of these neglected subjects that we at IWP have been teaching for 30, over 30 years. In 2007, uh, Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference issued a propaganda salvo that's been repeated by many in the West, that NATO expansion is an aggressive threat to Russia. This is a completely illusory argument. NATO expansion was one of the best investments that the United States and its allies have made for peace and prosperity in Europe. The nationals of so many of the former Warsaw Pact states of Central and Eastern Europe live in neighboring countries. There are Hungarians living in Romania, Slovakia, Ukraine, and Croatia. There are Poles living in Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania. There are Romanians living in Ukraine, Hungary, Serbia, Bulgaria, and especially in Moldova, Slovaks living in Austria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Serbia, and Ukraine, etc. A number of these countries have had irredentist ambitions, and that's the desire to reclaim lands that they once ruled. Before each of the world wars and the redrawing of borders. These ambitions could very well have contained the seeds of future conflicts. But NATO expansion gave all these countries a deal they couldn't refuse. Join the West's prosperous economic community and gain the best security that you've had in ages. But in return, Be a good neighbor, respect the minority rights, and ensure you've got a rule of law and and consent of the governed, and forget about your old territories. The results speak for themselves. There's been an extraordinary peace and prosperity in this part of the world, and the only area where this failed to take place was in the breakup of the former Yugoslav Federation where several wars broke out, some which included related reasons. The irony is that NATO gave Russia a possible pathway to membership. It was called the Partnership for Peace. But Putin's resentment over the Soviet defeat in the Cold War could not stomach what he considered would be an abject humiliation. Then there's the charge that the United States uniquely interfered in Ukrainian internal affairs to undermine the pro-Russian government. It's as if Russia must enjoy the sole privilege of interfering in Ukraine, as it did for years, and that pro-Western and pro-independence forces in Ukraine should have to compete with Russian-influenced forces but with no external assistance. In 2007, the very year of Putin's de facto declaration of Cold War against the West, Russia conducted a massive cyber invasion of Estonia. It was an indicator of Moscow's hostility to a pro-Western country that had finally freed itself of Moscow's yoke. The problem was that the United States and NATO in general looked upon that invasion, which basically paralyzed Estonia for a good week or so. Well, they looked upon it with, you know, we all looked upon it with a yawn. In 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. It had long prepared the battlefield by conducting its traditional divide-and-rule and and divide-and-conquer tactics to promote separatism in two Georgian provinces, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. The United States and the West greeted the invasion not only with a wrist slap, but with a major initiative in 2009 by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to push the reset button to Restore harmonious relations between Russia and the United States as if its aggressive actions never happened. This was followed by President Obama's withdrawal of ballistic missile defenses from Poland and the Czech Republic without consulting those countries. And this was done to appease Russia. And then uh, Obama started pursuing new arms control arrangements with Moscow, notwithstanding notwithstanding the fact that Russia was a serial violator of previous arms control agreements. The message the U.S. government was sending was, aggression can be conducted with no consequence. One can one can scarcely imagine a more powerful signal of weakness. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Moscow had conducted two wars of suppression against one of its colonies, Chechnya, which didn't want to be ruled by its colonizers. These were brutal, barbaric wars that attacked huge swaths of the civilian population, more and more war crimes. Then in 2014, we witnessed the Russian invasion of Crimea, Donetsk, and Luhansk, which has cost over 14,000 lives. Again, another wrist slap from the United States and the West. All these reactions have been accompanied by other signals of weakness. President Biden has limited our energy production which is preventing us from replenishing energy supplies that Moscow has been restricting from Europe. Biden has even become a supplicant to OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, asking it to increase oil and gas production. He's even gone to Venezuela while Mr. Maduro has been communizing the place. This is in the context Of the mismanagement of our relations with Saudi Arabia, which uh, not long ago wouldn't even return President Biden's phone call. Administration policy waffled on Russian energy supplies to Europe via the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Germany foolishly put itself in a position of dependence on Russian energy. And uh, and has put itself in a very difficult position. We failed to expose, and we knew about this. We failed to expose Russia's funding of the German environmental movement, um, and you know why were why was Russia funding this environmental movement so that it would oppose hydraulic fracturing and the development of an indigenous German energy extraction capability. And all of this was designed to make Germany and Europe dependent on Russia, Russian oil and gas and vulnerable to Moscow's long-established practice of, of energy blackmail. Amazingly, while Russia uh, was conducting its aggression, Uh, we were simultaneously relying on its good offices to help us reach the revival of a nuclear deal with Iran. And all of this has been topped by a a continuous disinvestment in defense, while not only Russia, but especially China, uh, have been engaged in in major military buildups. Russia's been able to read these tea leaves very clearly. And all the while, Putin was building an ever-greater tyranny at home. It started originally with the assassination of bankers who wouldn't allocate capital according to Putin's preferences. Then the assassination of journalists, political opponents, And even defectors who were poisoned on foreign soil. The highest highest priority task of our national leaders is to maintain peace and security. These are the prerequisites of every essential function of of our society. But what's peace? There are a lot of theories about it. Uh, At IWP, we teach what I consider to be my favorite theory. It's the ancient Christian concept of earthly peace that was articulated by St. Augustine. It's called tranquilitas ordinis, the tranquility of order. It it involves creating political order, namely the, the, the building of human community. It requires taking into account an accurate assessment of human nature. And on one hand, it recognizes it recognizes man's fallen nature and capacity to commit evil. So given that, it's necessary on the domestic front to have laws and law enforcement. And internationally, we need international law. But since there is no supranational law enforcement authority, we need armies. But building human community can't be done solely with laws and the police. We have to take into account the best side of human nature, which is man's capacity for truth, for justice, and for that love of neighbor that transcends the requirements of justice. So how can one apply this recipe for peace to the war in Ukraine? Manifestly, we are dealing with criminal aggression that depends upon lies. And this, perforce, must be fought and prevented and then fought with the tools that apply both to lies and aggression. And unfortunately, too many people are buying into Russian propaganda these days. People are saying uh, Ukraine is corrupt, so we shouldn't support it. And then other people are saying Ukraine persecutes Christians, which is a complete uh, libel against the country. It's completely Russian propaganda, and yet all sorts of people are buying these these Russian propaganda themes without really knowing the facts of the matter. now, how do you deal with aggression in lives? Well, first of all, aggression has to be prevented through deterrence. This has long been the, the, the task of the United States and NATO, because deterrence works. But it has both material and moral components, psychological components. <clears throat> Here. Russia has to perceive that its aggression would have certain serious consequences. It it had to perceive originally that the West, and still must perceive, that the West not only has the material resources but also strength of will. Those are the signals of strength that are considered when Russia measures what it calls the correlation of forces the relative strengths and weaknesses of its adversaries uh, as against its own. <clears throat> During the previous administration, deterrence succeeded. During this one, deterrence has manifestly failed. The threat of economic sanctions was clearly no deterrent to Russia, and efforts to prepare Ukraine to resist aggression were too little Too late. Indeed, the military aid that we have been extending to Ukraine, however salutary, has sent further signals of weakness both to Russia and to China. It has been sent hesitantly, it has drawn down our own defenses, and there is no serious effort to replenish them urgently. This only gives Putin the incentive to persist. It also gives China an ever greater temptation to go to war over Taiwan sooner rather than later. It has emboldened Iran, which has been using its uh, proxies, both Hamas and Hezbollah, now to commit uh, terrible aggression. (laughs) In addition, To the aforementioned signals of weakness, our failure to combat Putin's historical and political narrative has been a major enabler of this aggression. This constitutes one of the key non-military theaters of conflict. Areas that the U.S. government and the larger foreign policy establishment have, have largely neglected Remember, Zelensky stressed the importance of Moscow's use of television to promote its narrative, particularly in eastern Ukraine. But let's note that with his destruction of independent media in Russia, Putin has enjoyed a virtual monopoly of information that has enabled him to propagandize the Russian people into believing his lies. In addition to the false history, Putin has been alleging that Russia is, you know, he started this whole thing out, alleging that Russia is fighting Nazis in Ukraine. And amazingly large swaths of the Russian population have been successfully propagandized into believing this. Indeed, it's so bad that Ukrainians with relatives in Russia tell them about war crimes against civilians that they have personally witnessed, and their Russian relatives don't believe them. And we've done effectively nothing to counter the propaganda. In fact, We have inadvertently assisted Putin in achieving his monopoly of information. During the Cold War, we successfully challenged Moscow's information monopoly. We smuggled in literature, including subversive novels and books containing alternative ideas. We helped dissidents publish newsletters by sending printing, copying, fax machines, and paper uh but uh the most the most effective methods we used were our shortwave broadcasts of the voice of america radio free europe and radio liberty to millions of people in east eastern europe and the ussr <clears throat> but in 2008 we dismantled those broadcasts depriving millions of people of direct and, you know, and and both of these are direct listeners and indirect listeners, um, of one of the only sources of unfiltered information potentially available to them. A soldier who fought for Russia in Ukraine, a guy named Pavel Filatyev, Released not long ago a chilling 140-page memoir of his experiences in fighting in Ukraine, in which he declared that Russia had no moral right to wage this war. His larger purpose was to tell the truth to his fellow Russians in the face of the lies of the regime. And he, like Zelensky, asserted that, quote, The main enemy of all Russians and Ukrainians is propaganda, which just further fuels hatred in people. Filakiev's manifest demoralization gives us a clue as to a way to help Ukraine. And this is to employ, as the great Russian dissident from Cold War days, Yuri Yarim Agayev explained, psychological strategy against the Russian army. Indeed, many Russian soldiers, having been ordered to commit war crimes under false pretenses, are intensely demoralized, even without the benefit of a serious psychological strategy targeting them. They have, many of them have deserted, and they have even shot themselves in the leg as a way to abandon the fight and collect war injury money. In addition to all the material things that the United States can do to help the Ukrainians resist Putin's aggression, we have to concentrate anew on restoring a capability in the non-military arts of statecraft that affect the moral dimensions of conflict. And these include information policy, counter-propaganda, political warfare, psychological strategy, and public diplomacy in general. And each of these instruments employs the most powerful weapon at our disposal which is the truth. These are subjects that are neglected in the U.S. government and in virtually all of the professional schools of international affairs. We at IWP have made it a point to teach these subjects, since it's better to use nonviolent means if conflict is unavoidable than to start killing people to defend our vital interests. Now, I mention this about our school because our nation's foreign policy culture needs a sea change from its materialistic outlook to one that minimizes the necessity of using force while simultaneously maintaining a very strong military posture. So, let me just conclude by saying if any of you watching this particular presentation know of any Motivated potential students, be they recent college grads or even mid-career professionals who could use such education, please refer them to us. Anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, I I hope that we in our country can somehow restore deterrence uh, and an ability uh, to conduct our statecraft with with while minimizing the necessity of the use of force. Thank you.